This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with Glasgow Rocks assistant coach Alan Keane. He discusses how to prepare players for making the jump from UK basketball into the US collegiate system or into Europe, why having ego is important and how to manage it both as a coach and a player, as well as techniques on how to support players when they become outwardly frustrated. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with as many people as possible. I hope you enjoy. Good. So, Alan, first of all, really appreciate you jumping on. I know it's been a busy couple of weeks for you, kind of moving house and whatnot. Um, are you all okay? Has the move gone all right? You're all safe and well? All, all safe and well. Move move went well. So no complaints from me, Michael. I'm in the sunny lands of Scotland, enjoying the sunshine between the showers, that is. But uh, yeah, all good, buddy. Perfect. So, um I really appreciate you giving a bit of time. From my perspective, I'm quite excited to do this one. As we've discussed off air, I am a little bit of a basketball fan. I probably have a basic knowledge of rules and schemes and all that type of stuff. But I'm excited to see kind of what what knowledge can be shared and maybe things I can pick up on. For people that don't necessarily know you or your background, you just want to kind of go over what your main roles are and I guess what they look like from a, a weekly point of view. Sure, sure. I've just changed jobs. Obviously, we're changing location, but the domain is still the same. You know, I'm, I'm coaching basketball um, and I'm doing a lot of coach mentoring as well. So if I go into a bit more detail, I, I, I just finished up um, five years coaching at an academy in Reading, um, which is like a, an elite performance academy for 16 to 19 year olds. And all these guys come to the academy full time where we train five days a week and play as well. And um most of those guys are trying to get a scholarship to America or they're trying to make a national team or they're trying to get a pro contract. Um, very similar to a football academy set up really full time. I've left that to move to Scotland. And in Scotland, I'm, I've taken on an assistant coach's role with a professional team in Glasgow. Um, I've also taken on a coach mentoring role with a team, with a club in Edinburgh while overseeing their performance pathway on the player side and on the coaching side. And then in between all that, Mike, um, I coached the GB under-20s, Great Britain under-20 national team. I've been involved in the national team. I think this might be my 12th year going into it um, this summer. Obviously, we haven't had any European championships this summer because of COVID. Um, there was restrictions that didn't go ahead. Um, and I've actually gone into business with a guy called Simon Turner. So this is very much something on the side that we, we that ticks over, you know, as it needs to be. It's, it's, it's a company called Movement where... You know, we're doing work with federations and countries and, and some universities in the States we're talking to at the moment about doing work with their coaches. And it's very much based around developing, raising awareness of who you are as a coach, why you do what you do as a coach and, and who are the people you're coaching and who you need to be in order to be effective with them. Um, and there's a bit around the what if you're a basketball coach, specifically the technical tactical. Um, so that's a lot of online work at the moment, but, um, and that's, I'm finding that quite stimulating, Mike. I don't know if somebody asked me one time, re somebody asked me recently on another podcast, are you, are you a, are you a performance, are you a head coach or are you a coach developer? And, and, and I'm very stimulated by both, but I seem to be going down the road of doing more coach development than I've ever done before. Um, 
But my heart and soul is is being on the sideline. There's no questions there. Yeah, I think there's loads of fascinating bits there, which we should definitely come to touch on. I think probably as a starting point for people that aren't necessarily aware of what a pathway would look like for a young player in this country. So if we have an individual who's interested in basketball, say from the age of 10, etc., and then obviously at the age of 18, they're looking to either gain professional contracts out in Europe or Australia or obviously go out to college as part of the collegiate system out in the States. What does that pathway actually look like and what yeah, what would that their journey entail? Mm. Well, the most important part is often the most overlooked part, and that's the club system. You know, the the, the community clubs, the regional clubs, the the, the, the central venue league clubs, like they're the most important part. And, and I think that's very overlooked. Very often when we talk about the pathway of a player, we, we go straight to the academy system. We go straight to the regional team, straight to the national team. But actually, that's the end of the journey as far as this country can provide. The most important part is, is those coaches on the grassroots and out the front lines and, you know, giving that player the best possible experience and, and, maybe helping with the motivation and confidence to actually push on and, and do amazing things at academy and, and get on that pathway at a higher level. But once you get past the club stuff, um, at 16 years, uh, prior to that, prior to before they come to the academy, you, you, we have a regional program where, you know, you're talented or your player who's potentially talented at 14 or 15 gets invited along to a regional setup and they may meet once a month and do camps throughout the year outside of their club. So if you look at the London region, for example, you'd pick the best 20 guys in London, bring them together throughout the year at different camps. They then get put on a depth chart. They get put on a list, you know, and on that list, you're part of a pathway where you're deep, you're monitored. Could it be better? Yes, it could. And I think it's getting better. It looks like there's a lot of changes coming at the moment. So it's quite exciting for the young basketball players in the country, I believe. And then from there, you go to an academy where, like, I was working in one of these academies for the past five years, like I just mentioned a while ago. You would leave your your current school after your GCSEs and you would go to an academy in London, Reading, Leicester, uh, Bristol. There, there's about 10 of them scattered around the country. And inside those programs, you basically do your A-levels or B-techs and you, you basically train five days a week. You'd have a full-time strength and conditioning coach. You'll have, you know, you're, you need to have physio access. So schedule would be training for us on a Monday on the court, followed by an SSC session. Tuesday would be the same, game Wednesday. Thursday's a bit lighter, training in the evening, then twice a day, again on Friday. So it's pretty full on. And I, it's a shock to the system, actually, for the for the kids who come into the academy system in their first year. You know, it's a bit of a honeymoon period at the start. It's like, wow, I get to play every day. And then five weeks in, they're just absolutely shattered and realize that this is a lot tougher. And then there's an adjustment period. After that, most of those guys, they'll do their A-levels, B-techs. They'll either take two years or three years. Um, in that time, different opportunities present themselves. Do they get called up to the national team? If they do, that opens up a whole new world because they play um, they play for the country, which exposes them to a lot of college coaches in the States, or it'll expose them to agents, or it will expose them to clubs in Europe. Um, and different players have gone different routes. The majority of our kids in the UK want to go to America to study on scholarship at a university. Um, not all go, not all go. As you know yourself, that type of world is, is very, um, can be very humbling for a young man. And without the right support, it can be quite shattering. Um, not all make it, a very small percentage make it on scholarship to America or make the national team or make it to Europe if that's their desired destination. 
Um, and then once they move on, you know, like I'll take one of our guys this year who's moving on to Florida Tech now. He'll be leaving this week, actually flying out there. He'll, he did three years with us at Reading. Um, he's been on the national team under 16s, under 18s. He's been on the, the roster for the under 20s. He'll go to America. He'll play four years over there, um, get his college degree and hopefully try to go play pro somewhere, try to be picked up uh, by a professional team at whatever level he's ready for at that stage. So it, 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 that's the steps along the way. But I just want to emphasize the club coaches at 4, 12, 11, 10, 13, 14. They are the most important part on that pathway because they can really set that young man, that young lady up for what's next or not. Yeah, I think, as you said there, the importance is making sure those first experiences are good. As you said, if it's positive and they keep an interest in the sport, that's only going to help. Whereas if it is negative, then... That's obviously not going to be good for their long-term, um, obviously, development, but also interest within the sport. So in terms of uh, basketball itself within this country, what would you say is the biggest challenge to people making that jump? So if you look at either making the jump to Europe at 18 or 19 or going over to the collegiate system in America, what would you say is the biggest challenge we face in order to produce young uh, men and women who are capable and uh, ready for that jump? I think it's like any in any sport. I can imagine the, the environment that you're in daily is will make or break those opportunities for you. Um, and when I say environment, it's 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 basically back to what's the coaching like, because as the coach of the environment, we we kind of set the environment, and and people generally take the shape of the environment. So, for example. If I just take myself as the example, in Reading the past five years, if if I didn't facilitate a good schedule that wasn't too heavy on loading to where people were getting injured because just because you're doing more doesn't mean it's better. It's getting the temperature right with the loading, the amount of sessions per day, the type of sessions. It's getting the temperature right with being demanding and expectations because you can go too far with that. The, the, the more expectations, the more demanding is not always the best solution. Quite often it's the opposite effect, actually. Um, so you're, you're back to, for me, what what either makes it or holds it back is the environment that the player is in. And just like any club team or in any sport, certain environments are better than others. And if you unpick that, it's generally because of the experience of the coach. And it's generally because that environment can provide for you to train every day. That environment can provide for you to do strength and conditioning with a qualified strength and conditioning coach four times a week. That environment can provide for you from a physical wellness perspective when you're injured. And actually, a lot of, can prevent injuries with prehab programs and do a lot of testing, physical testing. Um, you're back to can that environment provide for you from a, a psychological perspective where they're helping you to become more mentally robust, to become more durable when things get difficult, to overcome challenges, to embrace struggle. Has the coach got the skill set or does the environment have um, a specialist in that role at that environment? Now, all these things I've just mentioned, Mike, are very difficult for clubs to do. And I think it's not realistic to expect a, a grassroots club to provide all that stuff. But that's where I think the academy, that's where the, I don't think that is where the academy program in the UK, when players finish their GCSEs, that's why they were set up to, to facilitate these things that are, that are necessary 
to um, to equip the player um, to go on that journey of getting a scholarship to America, to equip the player to go on the journey to to be in a position to get a contract to Europe. Um, and and we've had both. Like one of our players ended up going to Barcelona three years ago. You know, he's 17 years old. He did two years with us, and he and Barcelona signed him. And actually. <laughs> It's interesting because you speak to him and you say, right, well, what's it like? What's it about? You know, and he's like, he tells you what it's about. And, and myself and the other coaches kind of look at each other and go, oh my God, do we need to uh, be better with our environment? Did we set him up for this? Have we, have we done enough to help him for what he faced when he went out there? And you're limited as well in terms of being able to do that because you take that kid that went to Barcelona, for example, when he went there, he wasn't the best player in that gym. He actually, he was probably near the bottom end of those 15 guys. He was probably at the bottom end. He's probably in that roster 12 to 15 in terms of depth chart. When he was with us, he was at the top end. And that's just the nature of the, the environment you're in. Like the, the players in Spain are more talented than the players in England. Everybody knows that it's, it's, it's common sense. Um, in America, it's the same, but not at all schools, not at all high schools, for example, or, you know, some of our academies here in the UK are better than a lot of high schools in America. But when they take that step to go to college, it's a whole different world. Um, and they very often become, go from being top end in this country at 19, 18, 19 to bottom end at that division one school in the States or division two, two school in the States. And it takes time to adjust. So you're back to, you're back to, for me personally, and I might be biased on this, but I'm speaking from experience. You're back to how well did you prepare them? Not just technical, tactical, physical. But how well did you prepare them mentally for the challenges that are going to lie ahead? Because that big fish in a small pond in this country becomes the small fish in a big pond once they take that next step on their journey and the journey is new to them. So you're back to how well did you teach them to self-regulate? How well did you teach them to embrace struggle? How well did you teach them to manage difficult moments? Um, so that, for me, is the biggest separating factor. And Because some of our guys come back, Mike, but they've had bad experiences. But they've had bad experiences for different reasons. And one of those reasons is they weren't able to cope with the demands and the increased pressure. Okay, so there's, there's two questions right off the bat of that. So the first one is, why do you think um, we're currently behind skill-wise in terms of overall population, if you like, compared to a, a Spain or uh, obviously the States? And then two, how do you go around preparing an individual who may play in front of 100, 200 people, maybe max at an under-18 level in, in a game here, to then go and play, you know, a collegiate level, just for example, as a Duke that might get 15,000 people in their stadium ready for a game. How do you go around preparing an individual for that jump? Well, the first question is, it's very easy to answer. And let's not take Spain or America. Let's take Slovenia, 2 million population. Let's take Lithuania, 4 million population. There, thereabouts, my figures may not be accurate, but they're, they're in the ballpark, let's say, compared to the UK, 60 million, let's say. Slovenia and Lithuania um, are ahead of us simply because, well, not simply, there's a few factors, and I won't get them all right here, Mike, but the, the, the obvious ones are the players start younger. So you look in this country in football, for example, you know, you walk down in the summer's evening, you walk, take the dog for a walk in the park. You'll see under fives, under sixes, under sevens, under eights, under nines, under tens, all training. You won't see that in basketball too often. Some clubs are doing a great job, but it's, it's very, 
It's very, it's, it's, it's not common, let's say. So most guys in this country start basketball when they go to secondary school. So when you speak to the national team, we took a team to Spain or academy team to Spain about four years ago. And um, there was, uh, I think we we're in, uh, I want to say Madrid at the time. And uh, one of the Madrid coaches, you know, was giving a workshop to our players. And to begin the workshop, he said, okay, can you just tell me the age, how long you guys have been playing basketball? Now, remember, the guys I took were 16 to 19 years old. It was the academy team. And they, when, when they went around the room, he was like, he, he just asked them one by one, what age did you start playing? And, you know, oh, I started playing at 12. I started playing at 14. I started playing at 13. Oh, I've been playing two years. How old are you? I'm 18. So you started at 16, right? I've been playing. Like, he was shocked. You know, you could see the expression on his face going, wow, these guys are real beginners. And these were are some of our best players in the country. You know, they were in an academy, but they hadn't been playing. They were introduced to the game in secondary school. So that's one of the biggest barriers. Like, and I think until we overcome that hurdle, we're always going to be playing catch up to these countries. Um, we need to start there. That's the first thing. Second thing is coaching. You know, that's, that's the reality of it. Like we need better coaches. Like, and, and when I say better coaches, it's, it's, I think a quality coach wears different hats. You know, you've got to be proficient, obviously, at the technical details, the tactical details. And then the ability to coach and teach that and transfer that knowledge to somebody else or help somebody go on a journey to self self-discover those details um also i think it's understanding people i don't um you know it's it that's i think that's a tricky one and i don't think all slovenian and lithuanian coaches get that right for example is like how well do you understand people in order to influence people so for example you being a football guy you guys are our biggest competition to retain you know young people in the sport because obviously football being the number one sport in this country and then rugby and cricket, like basketball is up against some real powerhouses in terms of retaining um, yeah, numbers and talents. You know, we, we've lost a couple of guys to football who could have been scholarship guys in the States. That's not an issue. It's brilliant for them. Like they're pursuing their joy, what they want to do. But as a basketball coach, we, we really want to actually keep, you know, keep the talent as high as possible. So we would like to retain those guys, obviously. So that's some of the bigger challenges. Um, how do you prepare? So that's the difference, let's say, between us, Spain, America. You know, it's it's coaching, it's age, beginning age, um, it's numbers, it's competing with bigger sports and, and things like that. And, and you know, you, you turn on the TV tonight, you'll find a football game on some channel. You, you won't find a basketball game on any of the mainstream channels ever. You know, you have to pay a subscription for NBA League Pass or EuroLeague League Pass. Um Second question you asked me was, how do you prepare a young man for that, for that increased pressurized environment where you're no longer the big fish in the small pond? And, and it, it, that's a time thing, I think, um, Mike. Some guys are wired well already to deal with that, probably because of their home life and their parenting and their previous experiences and how they were brought up. Other guys really struggle with it. So, for example, let me give it you in a stepstone process. When they come to us in the academy, that's their first taste of I'm no longer the best guy in this gym. I'm no longer the the top two or three players in this training session. I'm probably bottom end. So you have to help them navigate that. And 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 part of it is raising their awareness of who they are. So, you know, it, it's it's you don't try to I, I never try to get rid of the ego. I think it's important that they keep a certain element of that, but keep it under control. But I we spend a lot of time trying to help them to understand who their true self is. So who am I in this environment? Um, so raising that awareness so they accept who they are in the environment. 
So they're not protecting themselves anymore and they don't um, shy away from challenges. Now, some guys, like I said, you come in and they're super competitive. They're not worried about making mistakes. They just go for it. Um, but then there may be an emotional outburst. So they're letting it out in a different way. Whereas other guys will pull back and hide back and go to the back of a line and, you know, not really go for the session in case they make a mistake. So it's just raising awareness. I do it through a lot of video. I sit down and watch a video with our guys and, and we sit down, we watch how the decisions they made. Did they commit to it? If they didn't commit to it, let's unpick why. If you did, but you didn't, you weren't successful, let's now talk about the execution. And it's just building their confidence and having honest conversations with them. So for me, it's raising their awareness. And then when they take that step, so they're in their second year or third year, because they're about to go to the States next in, in three months, it's having a lot of conversations around what that will look like and you know what you need to be ready for. Again, you're back to just helping them be completely aware of what's ahead, what's in front of you. What will you do? And, and then giving them a game plan or helping them to construct a game plan of how will you manage it if you're the 12th guy in this team? How will you manage it? What's the game plan if you make, if you're making mistake after mistake and the coach is killing you? Like he's really on you. What's the game plan in order to manage those moments? And it could be anything from just resetting yourself and, and understanding that, you know, you are new here. You are going to be the rookie of the team. And, you know, there's an element of acceptance. But there's also a game plan where, you know, you got to be prepared to go and speak to the coach one to one if you're not clear what he wants from you and have difficult conversations and be brave to do that. You know, so we and sometimes we role played. I've role played that scenario with a few players in preparation. Um, so there's different things you can do, but it's not a short term fix. And that's why I think we have to work on their uh, mental robustness. Their mental toughness, as people term it, very often, which, you know, we could talk about that in our time. But we work on that from day one over a two year period and not just in not just the two months before they leave. We work on that from day one, helping them to be more independent, helping them to be interdependent in action off the court, um, helping them to self-manage, helping them to self-reflect. We do loads of self-reflection, Mike. And I think those type of things indirectly build up their mental robustness, build up their ability to handle difficult moments. Always get done with the mute button. Um, is there any particular um, unique way you you use to get the self-reflection? Is there any particular like, standout thing that you've created or stolen from somewhere else that you don't see in common yeah. factor that, that you could talk about? Yeah, I mean, in practices, we do a lot of things. So I'll share a couple. One is, and, and some of these have been taken from, I've had a lot of support. I mean, let me just be transparent on that one, Mike. I've had a lot of people support me in my journey in coaching. Um, and to name them, Mark Bennett has been outstanding. You know, 10 years with Mark, he's really taken me out of my comfort zone and helped me to be a better coach. Vlad Andruskovic, performance director for, for basketball in the GB, um, has been outstanding in helping me be a better coach and, and Warwick can those three guys and more recently Simon Turner has been amazing as well so I've had a lot of support and I've not come up with the stuff I'm going to share with you now like it's been influenced by those guys I've taken it and made it my own and adapted it and tweaked certain things to you know trial and error kind of thing and butchered it and repack it you know re restitched it together again but one of the things we, we do we have done often is um we we've facilitated the practice session so the players have more of a voice and a choice in there and the way we do it is 
will give them the success criteria of, the, let's say we're doing a, an activity for 20 minutes, a defensive activity for 20 minutes, and we have our focus. So we give them the success criteria. Hey guys, success will look like A, B, and C. We give them the three things of what success would look like in this defensive activity. And I would say to them, right, guys, that's your only focus. We don't focus on anything else. They will play attacking because in order to defend, you need you need attack. But your hyper focus is on the defensive elements we just talked about. And inside these 20 minutes, you have two timeouts. So if we're going 4v4 activity, small-sided games, um, continuous, so four on, four off, four on, four off, and it's continuous. Any one of those teams have their opportunity to call a timeout to, to realign what they need to realign. So if I can give it to you so you can have more of a picture, they're playing four and four. There's a team off the side waiting to come on another team of four. It's quick rotations. I've given them success criteria of distance control on the ball, off the ball, um, high hands and closeouts and uh, help outside the paint. Let's say I've given them those three technical tactical success criteria. If they, and, and then I let them go um, once they're clear in that. They have permission to stop the drill, call a timeout, any player, and bring his team of four together to discuss what's not. There's a trend evolving. We're not high hand. We, we don't have high hands in the closeouts. We're not helping outside the paint. And I'll say to them, okay, guys, all timeouts in this practice for the next 20 minutes are only 10 seconds long. And the reason I would restrict the time, Mike, is because they're only focusing on three things. So when they talk, it's a case of, hey, guys, listen, we need to be better with our hands. Our hands are down on every closeout. They're making shot after shot because we're not contesting with high hands. That takes less than 10 seconds for one player to give that message to the group, and they fist bump and bang. They're back in the drill again. So it flows. It's a 10-second stop. If we're going up and down five and five and we're working on more tactical stuff um, or they have the success criteria, more things to, to, to focus on, I'll say, okay, guys, timeouts in these next 20 minutes of practice are 30 seconds long. And I literally time it. Like, you know, but my job and my, and my assistant coach's role in that moment, Mike, is to not intervene. We've handed it over to the players. They've told us they're clear on the success criteria. When they call a timeout, it's their time. My job and the assistant coach's job is to listen to what they're saying. And based on what they're saying, they've given us data of what we can scan once they go back on the court. And what we're scanning for is, are they trying to execute what they talked about? Not were they successful at executing, is the intent there? Are they trying to execute what they planned in that 10 second timeout, that 30 second timeout? So when you, that's one tactic or one facilitator we're using where they have to be more cognitive about what they're doing, more aware about what they're doing but also take more control about what they're doing. So you teach them to be independent and interdependent. Now, inside in that, Mike, there's a whole load of other things like communication, you know, what's effective communication? Um, are, are they accepting of each other? You know, is there is there emotions attached to that? Now, me as a coach, I, I've got a responsibility to step in at a certain point, and we can talk about what that certain point is in, in, in a moment. But that's one way that we help the players to become a bit more independent and a bit more understanding of, a bit more analytical, a bit more reflective. That's one way to do it. No, I really like that. And I like, like you said, using the time constraints provides different levels of conversation, um, et cetera. I guess a question for me, and this is something I wanted to touch on anyway, was how much ownership do players get 
in and around the session. So looking at more maybe on an attacking side now, traditionally you'd have your point guard that kind of obviously sets up certain, um, might be setting up certain like screens or trying to get movement off the ball, etc. How much ownership does the player or the point guard get in that situation? And how, how much of that comes from you from the side? Well, I'll always tell these guys early on, and I'll, and I'll repeat it frequently. Like, I'm not the expert in that gym. And, and I don't believe, no disrespect to any coach listening to this, I don't believe any coach listening to this is the expert in those training sessions. And I'll, I'll clarify what I mean by that. If a player is standing in front of another player and the game is live in action, then what that player sees, just because of his line of vision, what he sees will always be slightly, slightly, but that slightly could be the difference maker, will always be slightly different to the to what I see. I'm standing on the sideline or I'm standing over there. I'm not standing where that player is standing. So what that player sees might be slightly different to what I see. So I always tell the guys, I'm not the expert in here. You guys are the experts. You're the experts of what? You're the experts of you. You're the experts of what you see. You're the experts of what you think. You, you are the experts of what you feel. I want to come in and, and provoke that, provoke what you see, provoke what you feel, provoke what the voice in your head is saying to hopefully move you on and take you further with what you can see, take you further with what you feel and what you're noticing, and then take you further with an ability to make more decisions or a better decision instead of more decisions. So, you know, you talk about ownership and point guards. For me, I, I don't, it's a bit like the captaincy role. I like, you know, we have to pick a captain because we have to put it on the score sheet before the game for the umpires and the referees. And I hate it because I want them all to display the characteristics of a captain. I think we're a more effective team. And I say to the guys all the time, look, you know, on this team, if captaincy is really important to you, you know, because I have with the pro team I had in Reading, I did, sorry, I didn't explain. I, I coached the pro level there as well for three years, as well as the academy team. They sat alongside each other. So our better academy players were in that pro team. But in that pro team, we would bring in, you know, senior players like guys who came out of college in the States, haven't been there four years off. They played overseas in Spain or Australia. So we would have seven seven senior players in that team and then the rest would be made up of your talented academy guys. But when we're signing new players every year and I'd say to them, guys, if captaincy is important to you, I'm fine with that. But let's sit down and have a conversation about what that really means. Um, because I wanted everybody to display the characteristics of a captain. I didn't want one person to be the voice of that team because if that player ever got injured or anything ever happened and that player wasn't there, or on a pro level, you release that player because of some some reason, then now you don't have anybody with a voice because the others are so used to being led. So this my, my message here is the same. Like I, I call our centers, and that's the opposite position to a point guard for, for those listening. You know, your point guard is the one who facilitates everything like a midfielder in football. Your center is like your center forward or your center back. They play a specific position of size, let's say. I call them point guards and, and I, I, I probably screwed them up early on. They think this, I don't know nothing about the game and I'm pricking this. What's who's this guy coaching? This? He's calling a center a point guard. He's calling a power forward a point guard. I say you're a point center. You're a point power forward. You're a point small forward. You're a, you're a combo guard as a shooting guard because 
it's not just a point guard that leads the offense for us. Um, and actually, the team we had two years ago, we played through the foreman or power forward because he had a very good decision making ability and he had a very good balling skills. So he was a re- he was really our point guard in what traditional point guards are. So it's a bit like the captaincy role. They all they all will have responsibility to 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 talk all have responsibility to make the decisions and all have responsibility to start or end the offense, not just the point guard. And that's tricky to balance. And it's tricky to get to that point, Mike. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. And you, you, you do, you do need to put a lot of things in place, a lot of one-to-ones to get players to understand who are not traditionally used to that way. Um, but also uh, there's times I've had to kind of meet them halfway because they, it's taken a long time for them to get used to or accept that. And we've gone through a season with certain players where they, they haven't gone down that road far. They've started the journey and then they've doubled back because it was uncomfortable. And now you're back to being how patient will I be as a coach because the way I'm coaching them is slightly different to how they're used to being coached. And I, and I think that's one thing we've got to be very mindful, especially with new players. So one thing you mentioned earlier was around having having an ego and at times maybe there being confrontation between players on this. And I think this probably segues into it nicely because I can imagine... If you've got a point guard who, you know, traditionally is is used to playing a certain way, maybe you know a lot of pick and rolls, and then likes to get a free free pointers, which seems like every uh, point guard likes to now, compared to maybe, sorry, uh, compared to maybe a center or a power forward who likes to be in the paint and likes to work off the low post and obviously scoring there. They could be potentially two contrasting styles of play. And, you know, if they're not willing to give any ground in terms of allowing that player an opportunity to do what they want to do, that's going to cause some conflict. So just looking around the ego side, I guess, first question is, why do you think ego is important for the players and why is it important as a performance aspect? And then two, how do you go around managing when maybe that conflict arises either in the sessions you gave earlier around defensive or in the example I've given there of two players maybe clashing within their styles? Mm. I, I think that you first start with yourself as the coach. And, you know, what's I, I've got to figure out, and, and I had to navigate everything you just said there, Mike, I had to navigate that with the men's team, with the senior team I coached over the past three years because effectively we had a new team every year, you know, and, and I had to make decisions about, how the way I want to coach these guys, the methods I want to use, how true am I going to stay to that versus if they're only going to be here one year, am I going to get a return on investment of time with how I want to coach them versus how they would perform better better if I coach them a different way? And that has always been a dilemma for me. So I start with myself. I start with my own ego. Like, I want to be an athlete-centered coach. Let's say I approach the season with that mentality. But actually, these two import players we just brought in from the States, the two Spanish guys we just brought in, the Australian guy we brought in, and the other two English guys who were signing new with us, they've never been coached in an athlete-centered way, let's say. So am I going to now, because I want to be seen as an athlete-centered coach, and I believe in that, I have to make a decision. What's the best way to coach these guys? based on the experiences they're bringing, based on their previous experiences of how they've been coached in order to get the best out of them. So I have that to manage and that decision to make. 
do I stay stubborn and true to what I want to do or do I coach them in a way they're used to so I get the best out of them so the club can win more games? Or or do I say to myself, you know what? This is going to be a bumpy ride because they're used to being told what to do and not asked questions during the game like, what are you seeing? What's your thoughts? Right right now, look, he's playing you really tight. What, what's your thoughts on how we need to how we need to alleviate the stress from you? You know, like I had an American player say to me, you know, we were a month into the season and AJ said to me, coach, I I can't play like this. He said, he said, you ask me more questions than tell me more answers. I'm not used to that. And I can't, I can't play this way. And, you know, at that point in time, I had to say, you know, maybe realize, come back about four or five years. I said, I had to sit down with him and say, AJ, I apologize. Actually, this is completely my fault. I've just gone and coached you in a way that you're completely not used to. And I never even considered it for a second. I said, I put my own ego before yours. I thought, this is the right way to coach him. I'm going to coach him this way. Without ever asking him how he'd been coached, what's his thoughts on being coached a certain different way, and really getting him to see value in how I was going to coach him so he would buy into it and not have these like moments of frustration and these moments of confusion. And it was only when I sat down with him and I explained to him, AJ, I'm going to coach you this way because long term, I think it's going to help you to be a better decision maker. I think it's going to help you to be a better player because instead of you just being somebody I control with a PlayStation controller and tell you what to do, I actually want to facilitate the, the sessions and games where you're developing an analytical mind. You're developing um, a thought process of what can I do now in this moment because it's different to the last moment where you're self-managing. I want to help you to become a self-managing player because I think it'll help you become a better decision maker so you can sign a bigger contract, so you can play at a higher level in two years, let's say. And it was only after I had that conversation, Mike, that he he was like, right, I'm, I'm, all, I'm, I'm all into this. I'm, I'm ready to go. Take me on the journey, basically. Coach me that way then. Um, and it was very different to what he was used to. So I think when you talk about the ego, you got to start with your own as a coach. You know, you got to... And, and that helped me to understand myself. That moment actually, Mike, helped me to understand who I was as a coach a bit better. And, and, and because it, it, it allowed me to look through the lens of AJ as to what he was feeling when he walked into the environment that I'm leading, that I'm coaching in, uh, as opposed to coming from the one he's been in for the past four years. When you talk about the player's ego, um, I think it's really important because I think everybody has one. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I'm wearing a champion shirt today because the ego in, ego in me says I like champion and I want to be seen to be wearing champion clothes, for example. Um, and, and that's not a bad thing at all. Otherwise, I might come on here bare chested and not care, you know, um, and that would be awful. But um, even for the listeners. But I think the ego with the players, like I look, I go back to the European championships that, that I've coached in over the past few years. And I think about the players who've done well there. And I think about what has helped them to do well. And, um, you know, ego is part of it. Like they're, they, but it, 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 a certain level of ego, and it's a tough to balance it, but a certain level of ego allows a player to really back himself in difficult moments. I feel even if it's superficial, even if it's just a mask they're wearing, it takes them over the line very often. Now, you would how it comes out is is where it gets tricky and it gets difficult. The behavior that the player exhibits 
Is it because of their ego? And is that behavior acceptable to others in their environment? Or is that behavior crossing the line? Is their ego constructing their behavior to basically piss their teammates off? To actually separate themselves from the pack and say, I'm more important than you. It's in those moments that I, I step in and manage the ego or try to redirect their ego. Um, and we have a discussion about that, you know, and there's a few things that we've, I've done in the past, Mike, to help players, uh, manage their ego. And I can share one of those, one of those interventions if you want. Yeah. If you could, that'd be great. We had a player, um, again, another pro player around. The academy guys are easy, Michael. They really are. You know, they're, they're coming out of, they're coming out of training twice a week into, into an environment where they're training five times a week. And if anything, you have to do a lot to manage their confidence level, build their confidence level. You know, that's, that's really the biggest challenge with the academy guys. But with the pro guys, the ego is, is stronger with some. Um, and they're, 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 they're in self-preservation mode, really. They're, they're trying to survive and they're really protecting themselves and, Their ego can show in different ways from being very arrogant to very conflicting with their teammates to being basically emotional, emotionally unstable. You know, it comes out in in instability of their emotions, let's say. So we had a guy that fit, fit, ticked all those boxes, let's say about three years ago. He ticked them and he ticked them with a thick marker as well. He wasn't, he wasn't pencil ticking them. He was painting them. So I so I've got to find a way to freaking to, to help this guy, you know, because he's a talented, he's a talented athlete. You, you take the basketball away from him, you take him out for a coffee and you could meet a nicer person, you know, but he went into self-preservation mode as soon as he stepped on the court. I'm six, nine, I'm athletic. I'm, I'm here. I'm the highest paid player here. Like I'm, I'm better than all of you. And, and it didn't come out. It didn't show itself. Well, so I just set him down. I said to him, look, let's watch some video. Um, from practice last night. So we'd watch video and I would clip the video to show him, him at his worst. When he's, when he's moaning at his teammates, he's blaming somebody else. He's passing the responsibility. You know, he'd make a mistake and blame somebody else. And I would show him like four or five clips of this. And I would say, look, let me just call him Michael for the sake of this story. And I would say, Michael, what's your thoughts on that? You know, and you can't hide from the video or sometimes he'd say, Hey coach, no, that's not my mistake. That's his mistake. Okay, let me coach you in this moment, uh, Mike, to show you actually what we're trying to do. And you take him to a point where he goes, yeah, that was on me. Apologies. So, you know, you have these conversations where he actually, he admits it, but he's in a safe space because he's with you. He's not showing his face to the group. Now, if I can back in that briefly, Michael, you to get to that point, you have to have a good relationship with these guys. And, and that's a whole different conversation that precedes and preempts your ability to sit down and put any intervention in, in place with, with, with somebody with this emotional, irrational behavior. So anyway, we sat down. I said, look, you at your best, this is what you look like. And I'd show him video clips where he's emotionally calm. He's performing. He's firing on all cylinders. And, he, and he's playing well. And I'd say, like, which guy do you want to be? Which guy is going to sign a bigger contract? Which You try to connect them to something bigger than themselves or bigger than they're currently doing or connect them to their dreams. And like, okay, the guy who's firing all cylinders is going to sign a bigger contract. Exactly, Mike. So what can we do? What can I do to help you be that player as opposed to the player I just showed you in those four or five clips where you're you're emotionally unstable and you're blaming everybody and you're not taking responsibility and you're walking back on defense because you're pissed off your teammates. How can I help you to be that guy more than this guy? And, you know, you ask them for their opinion. 
because you you know you, what you're establishing there and the data you're getting there is do they actually want it bad enough or do they not care and if they don't care you know you're kind of backed into a corner you try again maybe at another time or you try a different route but when he decides i want to be this player that's firing all cylinders that's emotionally balanced and that's 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 a good teammate and showing my best side i want to be that player when they commit to that and they say stuff to you like that then he's opening the door for you to help him. But until he opens that door for me to help him, I, 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 I'm limited in what I can do. I can just keep trying to get him to open the door. Um, but once he does it, I, and, and the task I did with, with, with Michael was, I said to him, right, Mike, get it. We had an A4. I said, get an A4 sheet of paper. We got an A4 sheet of paper. And I said, in, and gave him a pen. And I said, Mike, in big writing, I want you to write one word or two words across that page in big writing. And I want you to write down, if you can do it in one word, brilliant. Write down one word that describes how you feel in these clips I just showed you when you're at your worst. Write down one word. So he wrote down frustration. Frustrated. Um, and I said, don't show me. You know, just write it down. Okay. So he gave me the sheet and I said, and I put the sheet up against these eyes and I basically put the sheet full, like contact, almost like with sunglasses. He wore the sheet like you'd wear a pair of sunglasses. And I said to him, what can you see, Mike? He said, I can't see anything. It's dark. I said, okay. So I pulled the sheet away about five, six inches. I said, what can you see now, Michael? And he said, I can see a sheet of paper with a word on it. Okay. I said, and by the way, behind him was a basketball hoop. So if I took the sheet away, he'd see a basketball hoop. And I say, right, can you see the hoop? And he said, no, I can't see the hoop, but I can see a sheet of paper with a word in it. Okay, so you're still blindfolded in effect. Yes. So I moved it away 12, excuse me, I moved it away 12 inches. I said, Mike, what can you see now? So I can see a sheet of paper with the word frustrated on it. I said, can you see the rim? He said, no, I can't see the rim. So I moved the sheet of paper away two feet. I said, what can you see now, Mike? So I can see a sheet of paper with the word frustrated, but I can also see the rim. And I said, Mike, that's where I need you to get to. So I said, if I moved it, when I moved the sheet, when I put the sheet up against your eyes, you're effectively blindfolded to the task at hand. You can't see anything. But when I moved the sheet away six inches, the only thing you can see is the word frustration, frustrated. You can't see the rim. And this is what you're like in those four or five clips and what you're like in those moments. You are now, you now can't see the task at hand. You're blindfolded to the task at hand. You can't see the rim. But I said, when I move it away 12 inches, what, what happens, Mike? I can see the rim and I can see frustration. And I said to him, this is what I want you to understand. I'm okay with you being frustrated because you're human. And it's part of your makeup as, as, as a person. We all have those emotions. But can we get to the point where you feel frustrated, but you're able to manage it and you can still concentrate on the task at hand. Because when you hold the 12 inches away, he can see the rim. The rim is the task, let's say, in this in this um, intervention. So I said to him, can we set up something where you recognize your triggers? And there's different ways to do it. And can we set up something that when you're feeling frustrated, you're not losing your attention on the task at hand? So he said to me, just say the word blindfold to me, coach. He said, during the game, when you see me falling off track or getting emotional or not taking responsibility, 
I said to him, I'll say the word to you blindfold because I just want to reconnect you to this feeling you're having right now in this conversation. I want to take you back to this moment because in this moment, Mike, you told me that you don't want to be blindfolded. You don't want to be feeling 100% frustrated, but we're never going to be able to erase that completely because it's part of the feeling you're having and that's fine. We might be able to keep pushing it back more and more and it may eventually drift away, but the focus is the task at hand. So I would say to him in training and the other players after a while were looking and go, why the hell is he calling this guy blindfolded? But during games, and, and I asked him at the end of the season, I said, Mike, did that really help you? So I said, it's the first time I've done it. He said, it's the best thing anyone's ever done with me. And he, he gave me a hug and he thanked me. He said, you're the best coach I've ever had. And I think it was just because of that one task. If I'm being, It wasn't because of technical tactical. I just helped him to manage his emotions, which affect our self-preservation of ego. Um, but we never erased his frustration. He still showed moments of frustration. But he was able to pull himself out of it quicker. Um, and the following year, I did something similar, except I took myself out of the equation. And I got a teammate to do it with Mike with, with another teammate. So let's say the following year, Steve, he was having some issues with, you know, his ego, self-preservation, uh, behavior, frustration, blah, blah, blah. And I got a teammate to, to, to support him. So that teammate would use a trigger word that would take him back to this type of a conversation. So we're, we're just reconnecting guys to what they said they want to do, who they said they want to be. And it's about reconnecting their mind. So you can take their mind off the thing that's causing them the problem, the blindfold, and you're redirecting it to the task at hand, which is where they said they want to be. They're pro players. They're academy players. They want to go to the next level. Nobody ever comes to a club to retire at the club. They want to make more money. They want to play at a higher level. So you could always use that as your um, recalibrator. But they have to be expressing to you that they want to be better with these things that they don't want the ego to impact them in a negative factor. But it's important that you accept that they they do have egos and it's important to have egos. It might help them survive a difficult moment in a game at some point. No, I, I really like that. I think the use of an analogy with him as well and being able to visualise that on the court is really good. And then obviously you've taken it a step further with having, a, uh, I guess, a close player be able to reignite it. And as you said, I think we accept, particularly with the uber-talented players that I've seen uh, documentaries on this. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but the playbook on Netflix, um, Serena Williams's coach says that often he finds the most talented players are the ones that have these frustrated outbursts because, you know, they, they know what they're capable of. But then all of a sudden when things start going wrong, it's kind of burning down. But trying to get them to reset and refocus on the task is... Um, really important and also like the fact you said that ego does sometimes drag you through I think you, you look at some of the top players you have um, in all sports but basketball specifically obviously Kobe Bryant was a big one Michael Jordan you look at doc documentaries with him Yanis LeBron all these players have a strong self-belief that they are the best and that actually I might have missed three three pointers beforehand but I'll make the fourth one and win the game so that's fine mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really interesting the way you're relating that that ego and actually we can use that we can harness it in a positive way there's just some steps that, that we need to do um, one quick thing before I let you go because we we're closely coming up to the time we'd allotted for this and it's something I wanted to take from the basketball world and maybe look at how I implemented this so if we look at ego, Shaq would have had a big one in his day with how, how dominant he was in the low post. Um, and one thing that's fascinated me 
kind of looking and then maybe making it applicable to a striker in football is the way that a low post player is able to, I guess, get themselves in the low post, receive the basketball and then, you know, manoeuvre themselves to then kind of get a bucket. So if we're looking at the basic principles for a low post player to get themselves into that position where they're able to hold off the opposing player, receive, and then obviously the type of footwork in order to get a bucket. What would the basic principles of that be? And is, is there anything that you see in your opinion that could would be a common thread between sports or anything we could do better in football? You know, it, it's it, that's such a wonderful question. And I shared with you briefly off air, Mike, that, you know, sharing an office with football coaches for the past, you know, five years has been very fruitful in terms of these type of conversations. And, and one thing I shared with those guys is, and that we're talking about cross sports here now. I, I, I think some of the best things we can do as coaches, um, and, and players could do actually, we could put them into those situations is actually speak to judo coaches, speak to wrestling coaches, because some of the tactics I've learned to, um, to be an effect, to be effective at getting open, be it in the low post or be it on the perimeter was actually from um, a judo coach who was talking about leveraging your body weight versus your opponent in order to get to a desired destination. So how can you use your opponent's balance, limbs, um, angle of body? How can you use that against him to establish position you want to establish? And it was just simplistic stuff, but brilliant. Um, so I think speaking with those type of guys is really could be really helpful as judo coaches, wrestling coaches, martial arts coaches, martial artists. If if you know any, they they're masters at you to at 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 um at navigating your opponent's body to gain an advantage with positioning. If you think about it, you know it's one of the things they have to do to be successful. So mine is the punching and kicking, of course, um, because that would be helpful in basketball. <laughs> I'm not sure the referees would allow it. But in the low post, what we teach our guys to get open is the first thing we always teach them is selling opposite. And it's like, you know, go somewhere, go somewhere, go opposite where you really want to go to begin with. So you can shift your opponent's body weight to the left if you want to go right. So like we do in all sports, rugby players are amazing at it, aren't they? It's sidestepping them you know, setting your opponent up. So for us, it's about, I, we use the term all the time, like training even last night, sell opposite, sell opposite. So sell like you're going to go this way in order to go the opposite way. When you do that, the next thing we talk about is KOB. And we use the, we use the acronym KOB, keep on body. And I stole that from a guy called Damon Jennings, who's a, who's a, who's now coaching in Canada, was an outstanding GB senior and under 20 women's coach. KOB means that in order to get open, you've actually got to do the opposite. You've got to go towards your opponent, not away from your opponent. Um, because when you go towards your opponent, after selling opposite, going towards your opponent on the next step actually helps you to seal where they're, where they can go. It helps you to limit their options of where they can go to next. So going into the low post is very simple. Let's say I'm coming down the left side of the floor. 
I'm going, and the ball is on the right side, I'm actually going to cut, I'm going to veer to the left. And when my opponent, the defensive player, starts to take position to the left, I'm then going to step across him in different ways. And I'll talk about how we establish that position in a moment. I'm then going to step across, but into that player. So KOB, keep on body. Um, getting open in the low post, getting open on the perimeter, we use our arms a lot, um, Michael. And we use our arms a lot, not not in a push-off way, but in a way that we can seal the defensive player. So if you can imagine me running at you face-to-face, and I want to get open on your left side, let's say. I'd run at you face to face. And with my left arm, as I approach you, I would swim over the top of you just to get my arm inside the left side of your body. So we call it the swim stroke. So there's three things there that are really important, getting open in the low post or getting open in the perimeter. And I think if you think about dead piece situations in football, I think they could be very effective. Selling opposite is one, which you do anyway. It's faking, basically. Um, KOB, keep on body. But before you keep on body to establish that position, the swim stroke, swimming over guys with your, with your inside arm, let's say, to establish that position. And now from there, specifically talking about low post guys, now from there you're talking about their base. It's a foot fight. It's not a fist fight. It's a foot fight. How strong is your base to hold that position? So ceiling, when you get to that point of selling opposite, swim stroke, KOB, how, how strong is your, is your base where you can hold that position? Because you're trying to pin someone behind you in effect, behind you. The ball is, the ball sees you. So you're between the ball and the guy defending you. And when I walk in a gym, normally at the European Championships, because we don't get to see those guys very often or opposition, the local league, we obviously send the domestic league here. You can, you can scout the hell out of people. But when I walk in a gym, when we play a European team under 16s, 18s, 20, the first thing I do is look at the legs of the, the post players. If their legs are skinny and they don't look like they've got a strong base, I think guys, we have advantage inside today. We can get a lot of uh, inside positions. We can pound the ball inside and really go at these guys. But then you play somebody like Serbia and you look and you say, my God, they've come in with two seven-footers and they've got strong bases. Their legs look strong. It's going to be tough to establish inside position with them potentially. So you're back to what's the strength of your base and that including your core as well. But I'll finish that answer by saying it's a foot fight at that point. It's not a fist fight. So you're not wrestling. You're actually establishing the feet and you're winning the battle with your feet. Perfect. Listen, that has brought us up to a uh, time we'd allotted. So really appreciate that. Loads of really good um, anecdotal stuff that we can we can take away and use. And I'm definitely going to be reaching out again to discuss this this footwork stuff, particularly in a low post, because like you said there, I think it's so transferable, particularly set pieces. But I even look at, you know, strikers who are strong as target men. How do they manipulate bodies, etc.? And I agree with you. I think judo is a big one. And I'm hoping to do a little bit of work on that moving forward. So really appreciate your time. Um, and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Anytime, Michael. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family.
I'll see you next week.